When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No, thanks. Thanks for what you do. It's always great to, you know, you're doing something fantastic. I mean, uh, understanding our reaction to this man film is a Rosetta Stone for how we respond to uh, masculine entertainments of this type. That was, I mean, you could not have gotten a better ending. The only ending better would be the last 12 minutes of Last of the Mohicans. You could have called me there and then, and I could have spoken for roughly an hour, two hours, <laughs> the top of my head. Basically, it was an almost scientific method that he had for creating these Michael Mann moments where it feels like time has been suspended. So now you're doing Mohicans, please. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for a special bonus episode of The Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Um, I love coming back to this show. This this show was such a victory lap and just a, a massive virtual thank you for all of the people who followed our insane journey of One Heat Minute. And as it happens, uh, this movie, which is probably one of the least talked about in the whole Michael Mann universe, especially in the online discourse, continues to come back around and maybe like this weird you know alien with antenna when someone starts talking about the last of the mohicans and especially the final 12 minutes or the finale just in general as it's kind of commonly known i kind of see it and it is absolutely insane to me that i haven't spoken to this man yet for one of our many podcasts but i'm so thrilled that today i am talking to him i saw him tweeting uh, uh, about the last minutes of the last of the Mohicans. And I said, why haven't we talked? And instantly things joined together. He is a freelance film journalist and adjunct professor. And uh, as if to make it more authoritative on his takes of the last of the Mohicans, but I'm just thrilled to welcome Matt Prejet. Matt, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm really happy to be here. And thanks for that great introduction. I sound so like... <laughs> esteemed and accomplished and <laughs> well, smart yeah well you are all those things even though you oh, might be you. you are all those things but um i'm interested and especially you as a teacher and assigning work and, and 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 those sorts of things for film students and and i'm always thrilled to see people recognize game you know game recognize game when you see this movie and i feel like it's one that's very dismissed amongst people's favorites of Michael Mann. I'm so thrilled when people are like, hey, like, yes, Collateral's great. Yes, Miami Vice, of course, I've got the Miami Nice podcast. Yes, Heat, The Insider, um, as the untimely passing of Chris Plummer happened, a lot of people were revisiting it and going, uh, actually, this movie's amazing too. God damn it. Like, what's going on? Um, and now there's even stoked largely by Bilga Abiri, the black hat hive emerging online and uh, gaining steam. However, 
the last of the Mohicans and particularly just the incredible like 12 minute film clip of action and emotion that crescendos this movie um, is kind of like some of the most stirring filmmaking that I'd ever seen. And I continue to say to people, like, if you want to watch a real true action, music, infusion, emotion, people conveying emotions without saying anything to climax a movie. It's like, it just, it's always like people talk about, oh, in Castaway, he doesn't talk for 27 minutes or, or, or there will be blood. And I'm like, no one really says anything at the last of <laughs> in that last 12 minutes, except for the, like the coder of the whole movie. It's just gestures and faces and action. And it's just spectacular. And it doesn't, it literally hasn't aged a day. I don't, I don't know of many other action sequences that have ever ended a movie personally that have ever reached those heights. No, I agree. And I also want to point out that I'm actually maybe the only person who loves Michael Mann who thinks this is his favorite Michael Mann movie. Yes. This is the one. This was my first Michael Mann movie that I saw in its entirety. Um, I was very young. Uh, I was very excited about this movie. I think um, I think I kind of didn't like it that much. I, mean, I, was, I was sort of disappointed a little bit, but then the, the heights, the highs are so good. Yes. Um, and especially the last 12 minutes, I've never... I hadn't watched this movie in its entirety in a very long time when I was watching it with a Saturday night movie Zoom group. Um, and I remembered every single shot, every single cut, um, every single gesture. The gestures are just incredible and this, the, the climax of it. And I wound up just re-watching it after we were done. I watched it like 10, 15, 20 times in a <laughs> row. Really just like the actual, the last fight between Magua and Chingachuk. Um, that's just an incredible, incredible, incredible scene. I also thought it was like a minute and a half. I'm just like, this is a perfect minute and a half. <laughs> and then to prepare for this, I timed it and it's 45 seconds. And it just feels like, yes. it feels like an eternity. I mean, he's this, you know, he's slowing things down. I mean, there's, I mean, it's, it's very, very quick. blabbering but i mean what a great 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 climax yeah he plays with time in such a wonderful way there because it's 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 there are moments that feel like they go they do go on forever because it's also i think in that weird thing that your memory does it just like it and the whole twitter account like one perfect shot is just like an exhibit of that it's like there are shots in movies that just stick in your head like they're a still frame and they just Mm -hmm. percolate in the thoughts and that face-off shot that face-off shot is with with that beautiful vista behind them is so incredible and just incredibly Mm -hmm. composed. And then the other shot that I love, because I've talked about it to a few friends now about like Wes Studi being like one of the great badasses and he just really never got his badass due. And even on the recent Miami nice episode, which people um, can listen back to, because that's going to appear in the thread just before we chat about this movie. Um, we were talking, Katie Walsh and I were talking to Ben David Grabinski and Ben David was like, we need him in like John wick eight. 
you know, we need Wes Studi <laughs> as a villain of John Wick 8. And I'm like, yes, that's like one of the, the, he's like, not seven, but eight. It needs to be eight. And I said, I agree completely. Um, but it's just that, that also that scene of him unsheathing his weapons and sort of like, <sighs> it's the Henry Cavill cocking arms Mission Impossible Fallout before that was ever a thing. He's just like, gets ready and, and, and stands there. And it's just, man, they it's better, just... It's better than the Cavill thing, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's yeah. such, the way, his elegant way he takes out the tomahawk and then whatever that knife is called. I mean, yeah, there's so many great shots. I mean, not just the one you were mentioning before, which is like the, the two shot of them staring at each other in the background, but like, there's like shots that I've never thought, I've forgotten about. Like the one that was like him, after he gets hit with, I think the war club in his back and he does this sort of like, balancing act like trying to his he's fucked up but he's trying to like balance himself i've never forgotten about that i, I first saw that when i was like 13 years old i've never forgotten about that shot i have no idea why that has just stuck with me but um maybe because i mean you really get a sense of what these old weapons do to the body the blunt force trauma that these weapons do and you really get a sense of just like them completely fucking up bodies and you <laughs> You only get like glimpses of the actual wounds themselves. Like you see that one part where he hits him, uh, Chinochuk hits him with the war club and the elbow. And then you get a brief shot. Like you barely, it's a blink and miss shot of this nasty, nasty, nasty wound. It is, it is really nasty. It's awful. There's, and it's throughout the movie, whenever you have, like you see someone just hitting someone with something, there'll be like a quick insert shot. And if you freeze frame it, I mean, I haven't, but like if you did, I imagine it would be like Cronenberg level, just disgusting. <laughs> oh, it's like- it- just what these weapons would do to the body is just like absolutely atrocious. And I, you know, the, the idea of, you know, Michael Mann is a huge perfectionist and a realist and he wants to get actually what it's really like. So I just imagine him spending so much time talking to the makeup team, just like, okay, well, what happens if you took like the butt of a rifle and you just smashed this guy's face in? What would that, what would that be like? Someone like Umkos could really, really bring it and destroy someone's face. I love, I love that that's in a really cordial setting. Like just sitting around a table, like okay. So just when he when he smashes his face, I want to see a concave. I want to see bones collapsed, and you're like just people like taking notes with wincing. But I think you're so right. Um, the only time I see shots like that, and I know this might sound strange, but it's like it's sport. So like in Australia, rugby league is one of our big national sort of pastimes there are sometimes where you see someone get tackled and you see someone drive a shoulder into a rib cage and then that person will be down on their haunches and they might get taken off the field and there's a break in play they'll do that instant replay of the shot and you do literally see people get hit and there's those spinning reeling shots of like oh like if i stand right now is something in my back broken and I think that there's that perverse thing that happens in sports, but that's the only other analog that you have for it a lot. There's other films that have made a gimmick out of it. The old um, Guy Ritchie uses the whole Sherlock thing where he's like, you know, breaking, but thinking about the bones that he's going to break in, in and, and then materializing it in, in rapid fire reality. But mm-hmm. I, I, that's one thing that like sticks with me is because you know yourself, even if it's something stupid, like you just kicked your toe and you don't know if you've broken it or kicked your toenail off or something. You're like, oh, that really hurt. Try and try and walk it off. And it's the big like walk it off moment for Magua because he has seemingly for so long just had this aura of invincibility. I think that's what's so the contrast of Magua's like aura coming crashing down, even from the Uncas fight to uh, to Chingachigook 
that between those two, it's so crazy because Uncas just seems like a baby. He's a plaything for Margot mm-hmm. in that earlier time, and it's so scary. But at, in the, in this moment, all that realness, like especially that first swing and 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 tumble from Russell means it's and then that back shot. That's like the first hit, and you're like, whoa, he is mm-hmm. not ready for this. Yeah, the fight's over as soon as it begins. Like Russell Chingachgook. Like, gets in there with like the exact right blow he needs to get. And he's just like, I mean, you also get the sense like Magua, he's just like, yeah, I deserve this. Yeah, I <laughs> fucked up. Yes, I'm a, I mean, you talked about it in this podcast many times that Magua is actually, he's right in a lot of ways. He's someone who he's has right. been, you know, he's been consumed by anger. So therefore he must be expelled and he must be defeated. But he's completely right. He has, he's right to believe everything he wants to, he, he's actually going to do, but he still knows that he has to, uh, he deserves what he's going to get. I mean, and all those, like going back to like the close up, the gesture shots, the close ups, all like his expressions, you know, he's he's so blank faced and so still and so contained throughout the entire movie. But then, like, once he starts like getting hit during this fight, he knows right away that he's lost this fight and he's just going to let it happen. All those like shots of him just staring at Shinjukuk, uh, just with this like kind of just like, like slack jawed expression. He's like been hunched over a little bit. He's just like, okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess I just, it, that it's funny that you said that one of my other favorite films also came out in 1992 which is Clint which Eastwood's unforgiven oh yes 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 and that whole deserves got nothing to do with it that feels like a very magua mantra because he's like he's just living he's trying to make his way in this insanity and it is treacherous and uh, betrayal is a currency, you know, how you can, how he, he can manipulate. Um, and you feel like the vindication that he wanted from his Sasham about all the things that he'd been doing is obviously lost. And so as he's walking along and especially when he loses Alice, there's something in his eyes, like there was an anger and a passion that's in his eyes that's lost at the end of that interaction that happens with his, with his uh, Sasham. So that by the time he's here, like there's that, I love what you said. It's like a vacancy and a like acceptance. And it's so, this is why Wes Studi is the king because he's doing more with his eyes. And like you said, just with like a bit of slack jawed shock and not like hamming it up, just like legitimately I'm in pain and I don't know what to do here. He's just mm-hmm. giving so damn much in this performance with conveying emotion that, and, and, it's like that. It's like the second last shot before that two shot, where you actually see his whole face looking, and his eyes have accepted it, and he's like, "This is where I am." And it's I don't know. It's 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 not asking for forgiveness. It's just like sort of an. Uh, this is who I am. I know I'm about to die, and then obviously the killer blow. But man, forty five seconds. Forty five seconds. What other fight scenes give you this much in 45 seconds? God damn it. Like, doesn't that yeah. Rock and Vin Diesel fight in one of those fast movies go for like 12 minutes and they just sweat on each other? Like, what is going on? Yeah, yeah. He gets so much out of it. I do want to go back to like, you were talking about with the Alice scene. I mean, that whole Alice's suicide sort of like throws him off his game. But that's yeah. also like, you know, you see all these like great, again, he's been like very still through the entire movie. But then all of those reaction shots that Wes Studi has during the Alice scene are just like incredibly haunting. Like you could see, you know, his entire expression changes, but also the thing that always haunts me is like when he does that big swallow and you see his Adam Apple kind of like move around and he's just like, he, his jaw is clenching and he's just like, this is really haunting. This like, I am really 
really brokenhearted by this. I have, there's a lot of emotions that he's actually having. It's really the first time you see, apart when he's from when he's talking about his backstory, where he's very angry and, and justifiably angry. That's really the, the only time you really get like a kind of vulnerability from Magua. And you sense not just like the humanity, but like the complexity of this character. And uh, yeah, I mean like the shot, again, the shot of him just like swallowing and sort of shaking a little bit. Um, one of the benefits of watching this, you know, climax like 12, 15 times <laughs> is that you really get to dwell on like the complexities, the details and the nuances of Wes Studi's like the, 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 the facial expressions and the things that he's doing with his body, um, just incredibly haunting because there's no clear, there's, it's not just one emotion, it's like multiple emotions loaded on top of each other and makes it all the more impactful because you haven't really gotten a whole lot of insight into Magua. Westudy has been very kind of like laconic and reserved and remote. And so when you finally, when you finally get that emotion, um, it's, yeah, it's just, ugh, ugh. I, I don't have words. It's just, it's just like bewildering and so satisfying. Yeah, I, I I think that word bewildering is exactly how I feel whenever I see him because it's such a it is such an emotionally complex roller coaster and that happens in about, I don't know, ten seconds where he transfers from full assassin kind of kill mode and he like sh like tries to shake it off to be compassionate and the literal remnants of that assassin stuff are just like they're all over him. Like he he can't he actually can't shake the impulse. He can't shake that impulse for for to to, to ravage, um, and he's holding his hand out, and even though there's blood on his hand, as as, as poetic as that is, like reaching out a bloody hand to to to, to call her back. <laughs> I try in my head I feel like there's like there's a catalog of performances that and and huge actors that give wordless performances that I'm like building in my head constantly because whether it's there's just something about it one of the things we just just before hitting record you know um I was talking to Matt uh, in uh, in his work as an adjunct professor um of cinema studies taking a class uh, taking film study students through um, a text and we we're talking about the movie children of man alfonso curan's film um, which we are both kind of universally gushy over and i just feel like there are so many movies these days where i just am sitting in my chair and i'm watching it especially more adult movies or even action movies they don't have to just be you know dismissive kind of like trash where the characters just tell me everything absolutely every thought and in a detail it's like reading a teenage girl's diary in a movie like and i'm just like can we stop um and there's even um a little a little earlier this year on a recommendation from one of my um, good friends jet airs i checked out this great little french action movie about a heist crew literally called the crew and it has a very sort of stoic you know 
Neil McCauley esque leader um, at the at the head of this crew who is a is a bit of a storm of emotion. And I it was it's a French film and it's on Netflix. So if you guys want to check it out, absolutely do. But I was refreshed watching a movie like that because some of the antagonists and the protagonists in the film they don't say much. They just say really blunt, direct things to each other and then process it. And the great thing about the direction was that it's processing it for you in the, in the, it's like, it's not treating you like you need to be told everything. And that was such a refreshing thing. And I find myself just like, they're the films that I almost immediately, and it's a very Michael Mann thing to do because he's such a, um, you know, he's such a mood and vibe guy, but it's, it's, I, I can't stand it when, I'm having to be forced an internal monologue when you don't need it. Like, let these goddamn actors act. And Wes Studi, the most underrated actor maybe ever. Um, he's like, Mag <laughs> Magua is, is top 10 villain of all time. Um, you know, people talk about Killmonger in Black Panther as this huge cultural text that had a huge impact. And it's like, guess what? In 92, Magua not only was right, but he did it first. Like he did the, he did Killmonger <laughs> pre-Killmonger. Like that's the guy. Like he's, he's that prototype. And it's so refreshing now, like, and now that we're recording these episodes, actually some of the episodes we recorded earlier, Wes Studi hadn't won his honorary Oscar yet, but it's actually a thrill now that I can say Oscar winning Wes Studi, who was honored for his body of work, including this damn film. Um, you know, the, the, you you take you take those you want you want kids to watch this guy. If you want to be an actor, it's not about the big, it's not the Olivier stuff that you really need to master. If you want to be a true cinematic artist, it's this. It's where you, where all of the stuff that's happening inside you can just come out through your pores because they're the things that last. Because like you said, it's bewildering when you actually take a moment to break down every element of how he's doing that. And then there's a mystery as well, which is like, how did he do that? I don't know, but it was amazing. Well, I mean, that's a screen acting. Screen acting is not just like knowing, like it's reciting dialogue or something like that. Screen acting is like playing towards the camera. Yes. And one of the great things that cinema can do that really no other medium can do on television maybe, but is the close-up. Is like you uh, close up a, a motion picture, 24 frames per second of a document just watching someone's face as they're in real time and reacting to things. And so that's one of the great things is people who are really good at doing almost nothing. Like yes. in a way, it really, if you watched a lot of this movie and just watched West Duty's face, it's almost like, you know, the Kuleshov effect thing where it's just like a neutral <laughs> face and whatever you cut to, that is like, that is the emotion. You can broadcast that to it. Yes. Um, so this isn't quite that, but like he's doing something similar. Like a lot of the time he just has a very blank neutral face. And what that does, hopefully, is that makes you lean in more because you don't know. They're not telling you everything. They're not putting things in the words. They're having, they're having an air of mystery and they're allowing to have all this complex emotion and nuance that they're not speaking about and which you yourself as a viewer can just, you can have reading on it, you can have projection upon it. Um, but it forces the viewer to do work, uh, which you don't really get if it's just like, a Marvel movie is like, well, I want this and we have to fight this bad guy or whatever. And there's really no mystery to the characters. But when you have characters that don't talk and don't do a whole lot with their face and they, they're actors who are really comfortable with not showing off their emotions. Uh, I would think we recently, another example of this would be Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where like he has a fair amount of dialogue, but most of the time he's not saying anything. He's not doing much. No, he kind of has a smirk on his face all the time. He might be a murderer. Um, we, <laughs> yeah. we don't know. It's a 50-50. He could be a wife killer. Um, and he's also Brad Pitt. And like at the height of like his cool Brad Pittness, allowing him to 
you know, like Brad Pitt was very kind of like, uh, kind of like show offy when he was really younger, like seven and stuff. Like he's just like really showing off in your that movie does such a good idea, like caps, uh, you know, showing that, that capturing he, that period. He's the contrast to Morgan Freeman Somerset in Seven, who is the coolest mofo alive um, and does a lot of that. Freeman's great at that too, that just like neutral projection of emotion that's happening internally um, before mm-hmm. letting it crack. My One of my favorites, this is um, another recent one, just because we're talking about those great ones. This is a younger actor. Um, who was working in an Australian film that got a lot of notoriety because of the great Jackie Weaver as the supporting actor, and now it's a TV show, Animal Kingdom, which is mm-hmm. David Michaud's film. There's a young actor, James Frenchville, who's working a lot more now. He plays Josh. The beginning of that film, for folks who haven't seen it, because I won't spoil anything about the movie, but there's the beginning of that movie, James Frenchville's J- uh, Josh is sitting on a couch watching an Australian TV show. I don't know if you guys have got it in the US. It's a stupid game show called Deal or No Deal. Where there's a whole oh, bunch yeah, of yeah. Whole, bunch, whole bunch of suitcases. I don't know. We don't have it anymore, but at the time we had it. We don't and either. We have no more. But it was big for like three years. Yeah, same. It was probably the same three years, just different people in <laughs> different countries. But there's this mo- moment he's watching TV as a kid in his school clothes, and it looks like he's just blank face staring zonked into this television, and it looks like uh, his mother is asleep on the couch next to him and he's watching this show and David Michaud's like doing this slow push on the camera and Anthony Partos who does the score is just swelling this unbelievable score of this movie this sort of swelling notes of what the theme of the movie is and then two paramedics come into the frame and his mother has OD'd Mm -hmm. and they come in to collect her. She's passed away and he just sort of opens the door casually and then goes back to watching Deal or No Deal. <laughs> and it's done in such an understated way that you go, like, you could be shocked and affronted and like, oh my God, and you are. But what also happens is you look at how casual this kid is doing this and you, and you get disturbed by how many times has he done this to have no panic and to have no emotion and is it is it emotional is he emotionally stunted is there something wrong is this just learned behavior and the fact that James Friendsville is so extremely controlled and casual with this whole affair changes and elevates the scene to something that you're like immediately captured by it hooks you and you're like holy shit this movie's great right now it doesn't have to do anything else and it does so much more and you're only introduced to like one character and then the movie just explodes and you're like, yes, this is the, exactly that kind of movie. But I just appreciate the hell out of that. The, exactly. As you said that the, the, the moments of restraint that can pull you into a character and just, just like, like if, if there's any movies that can make you lean forward and that's what I love about characters or movies. If there's any movie that makes you lean forward on your chair, like this is, there is something special. That's, that's really special. And then, and again, last of the Mohicans is not, talked about as like one of the greatest action movies that is maybe ever made but it also mm. kind of is like the action set pieces in this movie are unbelievable mm. and and then it crescendos with this ending and so yeah just the balance of like great character work in amongst huge action movies sometimes feels like it's incongruous they're like ah oh, who cares about the acting let's just like get people in motion doing stuff but that chaos and then stillness is is I think that's the another massive element of why this movie works so tremendously. 
Yeah. And also why it's under two hours. I always forget this movie is oh. under two hours. It has, uh, this is going to sound strange, but it feels like a two hour and 15 minute movie. And yeah. usually that's like, you know, that's a complaint. It's like, oh, it was two hours, but it felt like three. This feels like it's under two hours, but it feels two, hundred, two hours and 15 in the best way possible. Cause it's just like, it's just like filling the way that a really good two hour and 15, like a good two hour and 15 minute movie, not like, I'm going to trash Marvel again. I'm sorry. But like, those are all like, those are like two hours and 15, two hours and 20. And it's just like, it's filling in a different kind of way. But if you watch like a big movie, that's like two hours and 15 minutes. Uh, this kind of feels like that while also saving you time. So in a way, it's almost like you gain an extra 15, 20 minutes because it's not that long. No, it does. It's one of those things that now, and I know that it's probably the same with you. I have so many friends that recommend a lot of TV and like the ubiquity of different streaming services. There's, there is a lot of great TV out there. Like there, there absolutely is. And, and very cinematic, excuse me, cinematically produced like television series and very interesting and vibrant and all those sorts of things. But so much, I'm like mathematically ruthless. Like someone will go, you should watch this. And I'm like, okay. Um, how long is it? And they're like, oh, well, it's like 13 one-hour episodes. And I go, and I looked down at my, like, pile. There's a pile behind me. Matt can <laughs> see this. You guys can't see it. There's a pile behind me of two watch that that is, like, that grows. And, like, it almost stays at a stasis of, like, just one goes onto the top and, you know, I cycle them out. And I look down and I'm like, I could knock off half that pile in that time. And so mm -hmm. you just go, no, thanks. And so, and I think that's the kind of the same way with the Marvel stuff. And I'm, I'm super happy for people to enjoy whatever the hell they enjoy. But I like, I, like you said, this is so fulfilling that you almost want to like go back and just run back the next eight minutes. So you've got a two hour slot like of the movie uh, because <laughs> it's so, it's so good, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really undervalued. I think that, yeah, that in general, so many movies are so much longer than they need to be. Um, and it's that lack, it's that over explanation and pitching to a low common denominator that I actually don't think exists. I think so many fans and people are way more savvy than, you know, the edit gives them credit for like really heavy exposition, multiple expositions. It's like, we don't need this. Like, just let's keep moving. But in that old, it's that old Robert Roger Bird adage, which is no great movie is ever too long and no bad movie is ever too short. Like it's just, the, they all, it's always those things I could, and in, in the opposite, I could watch Michael Mann's eight-hour cut of Lust of the Mohicans if it existed, um, like, <laughs> if, if I could imagine that. Um, but, you know, we got what we got, and I'm, I just think it's, it's all the more powerful and resonant because it's just so lean. The whole damn thing's lean. Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. is lean too, but this whole movie is lean um, uh, exactly as it is. This is peak Daniel Day-Lewis. He never looked even better. He is so beautiful in this movie. Yes. Everybody is so beautiful in this movie. Oh my, Madeline Stowe, when, when, when yeah. peak Madeline Stowe is kissing peak Daniel Day-Lewis, it's that thing <laughs> that happens. Matt, Matt's got nicer, more luscious, longer hair than me, longer than probably I've oh. ever been able to grow it. But I'm like, I'm always then go, God damn it. Do I spend like two years growing my hair to try and get the Daniel Day-Lewis look? And then I realized, no, because I'm not going to look like that. I'm not going to live in that I'm either. Not, I'm not going to live in the woods. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is all quarantine hair, by the way. I just thought it'd be fun because I've never had long hair to see what it was like if I just didn't cut it. And I'm actually getting it cut to tomorrow. So you're one of the last people to see this long shaggy mane that I have, the 70s Columbo villain mane that I have. I want to be really a bad person for you and say, I love it. Because so many of oh, my okay. friends that I've seen in quarantine on Zoom 
have got the quarantine hair and I have, I always get too impatient and it just goes. Like, I'm like, get rid of it. I can't handle it. But some <laughs> of my friends, you know, the great Clay Keller who does the screen drafts, Ben David Grabinski, I saw him with his, like, his, uh, his mane as well. And I'm just like, keep it. You look amazing. I love this long hair. I wish I had the patience for it. I don't. Um, but that's Daniel Day-Lewis's fault for me. I just, or, or Sonny, or, 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 uh, or Colin Farrell's Sonny Crockett. Like, every time I'm like, God, maybe, do I need the Sonny Crockett hair? Yes, I would love that. <laughs> It'd be really I don't good. Think I, can, I don't think I can grow the Colin Farrell, which is also, by the way, of course, originates with John Voight and Heat. <laughs> yes, uh, that it does. haircut, the haircut, <laughs> and like the, the little mustache that he has. Um, that's all John Voight and Heat, as you well know. Apart from just capturing Daniel Day Lewis at this beautiful peak, this is also just like a reminder that, just especially in this sort of like sexless world of movie world that we live in, where no one ever wants to have sex with each other in movies, you go see like Marvel movies or whatever, no one's really hot for each other. And so watching something like this, it's just like Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe, not only are they like at peak beauty in this movie, they are so into each other. And they only get that one scene where it's just like heavy petting with like that one, that, that score, the main theme. And it's really beautiful and that's all we get to see of it. But it's just like, this movie is really hot. Like these yes. guys really, really, really are so into each other. And you just never see that. What are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. It's what all the kind of Austen novels and especially the Austen adaptions do, which is that sort of like corsety, like sweaty, have to be sort of subtle attraction. And, you know, they're in a fort. It's in the in the heat of battle. They're lit by firelight. Dante Spinotti's in the fort lighting all these incredible scenes. And mm. they're there and it's just like corsets, warmth, sweat, beautiful hair, beautiful people. It's like, God damn, this movie is sexy. And that's, that's a huge benefit of the whole movie. And even, even that sort of pining and yearning from, uh, from Uncas in this movie for Alice, um, I, I, mm. I, I Eric Schwieg's face, you know, I, I think that that meme that people, you know, always have that, that gif that everyone's got of him, like sort of sidling into frame and checking out Alice is just like <laughs> the intensity is all there. It's and, 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 you know, that's, um, that's that's another thing that's come up on the Miami Nice show for, for folks who've been listening is like there is nothing wrong with genuine romance and in fact that's actually a huge part the life and the loves of the people that are the central characters of the Michael Mann movies sometimes people are very quick to dismiss that 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 they're kind of the weakest parts of the movie and then as you revisit it over and over again you actually realize that the movie fundamentally doesn't work if it doesn't address these people's like deep-seated desires like what they actually want their lives to be and maybe how what they want their lives to be is clashing with um uh is clashing with their sort of professional 
impulses um, and professional desires and how that personal and professional and, and, you know, a lot of people talk about that with Michael Mann, but I think that like, it's not as, it's not as explicit in Last of the Mohicans because obviously these are frontiersmen. So it's not like they're going to a nine to five. It's the whole way of life. Um, But, but I I think that that's just something that's really important in this movie as well. And it just, it takes it to that next elevated level. Yeah. And there's not a whole lot of time they have to actually develop the relationships. They're just like, they're just really into each other. Like Uncas and, and uh, uh, Alice, they are just like, they're, they're, they almost have, Alice almost has no dialogue in this movie. There's really very little time for them to develop this relationship. And you can, I can imagine, I would love to see the original screenplay for this and see like if it is as ruthlessly precise as it <laughs> is in the movie where it's just like, it's, it always feels like he just took out like all this like dialogue. You don't need this, take this out. We can just have like the facial expressions that will say everything. But I like, wonder if there's like more kind of like, stuff with them that they even maybe shot. There was a much longer, like a three hour cut of this movie at one point where it's like, oh, Alice and Uncas, oh, let's, let's talk while we're walking, you know, or something like that. And it's not there and you don't need it. I mean, the fact yeah. that it's like sort of like, doesn't come out of nowhere, but like in the last like third of the movie where like you realize, oh my God, these people, oh, they're into each other. They're really, really into each other. And you haven't had a lot of time for the movie to actually develop that, but you don't need it. You just need facial expressions. You just need them kind of like looking at each other. You need an like, embrace. Wow. There's that there's that great moment yeah. where she's standing near the falls and Uncas grabs her and he, and he nurses her and then she like cuddles into him and you're like, oh, oh, that's yeah. happening too. Like it's it, <laughs> like, you know, you just you kind of like, you've been so dialed in to, you know, staying alive no matter what occurs or I'm looking at you, miss, my the, like the hottest line in cinema history as far as I'm concerned. Um, like you're so dialed into that that you're like, oh, this is happening too. But it's like, yeah, we, we're of age. We're compatible. We're attracted to each other. We like each other. I think the facade of society and all those expectations and all that stuff, like all contemporary shit that is overlaid, at the end of the day, when you met your significant other, whatever, whatever, like what, however that you define that person in your life, when you met them, it really came down to, I'm attracted to that person. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's an attraction, physical, mental, you know, emotional. There's something about them. There's something where you look at each other. There's just like a lightning strike. And I, I love that in Michael Mann movies, he's like unafraid of the lightning strike and unafraid of that, like bang, like he wants to create that electricity, you know? Yeah. Like, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I would say also, it's not just like, oh, you're hot. You know, it's not just yeah, like, I mean, they know they lose the Lewis and incredibly hot. <laughs> Jody May and Eric Spike, incredibly hot people. But it's not just, it's you, even though it's like all, you're mostly just getting kind of like, like close-ups and glances and stares and stuff like that. It's really loaded. Like, it's the same thing with like the Magua stuff. Like, you just need to look at them and you get the sense of this like very deep, profound love. I mean, it's, it's almost a kind of like the romantic comedy thing. It's like, oh, they hated each other and now they're in love. So at first, Madeline Stowe or Alice or Cora rather, Cora is like sort of like, I'm not sure about this Hawkeye guy, but he is pretty hot. And <laughs> uh, but then she gets like the, the, they they really respect each other. It's 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 both ways. Like Hawkeye is very manly, but he also he senses like in Cora that he senses a strength in her that maybe she's not even aware of a little bit. And the same thing with Uncas and Alice, and it just allows us to use our imagination to like, plug the stuff in. And you know, it's not just like a shallow love, it's a deep love. They, res- they, they send something in each other and they're also able to like find some, some strength that they maybe don't even know that they have. Alice is someone who like, we don't get any back 
story about Alice, but we can sense her entire being is that she's someone who's very sheltered. Cora has like protected her the entire life. And she's like in the wilderness and she's really confused, but she also has a strength that she didn't even know she had. And when it actually comes time for her to do something strong, to actually like, you know, kill herself, she has, she can summon that strength because like, because Uncas has seen that in her and he's brought that out of her. And again, I'm completely possibly overreading this because it's all just like close-ups. It's not in dialogue whatsoever, but it allows us to, this movie encourages us to use our imaginations to fill in gaps that they don't, you know, give us, that they don't fill themselves. And that's one of the reasons that makes this movie so great. And also, again, under two hours because <laughs> they don't have, they're not overloading with, they're not wasting our time and they're, they're making us actually do some work uh, that we're willing to do, hopefully. Uh, I, I, I totally agree. And I think it's like, it's really great. It's really great characterization to show what you're attracted to and kind of what you want, where sort of Hawkeye is, uh, Hawkeye sees Cora's like immediate strength and courage and like wants to protect the, the protective impulses. And, you know, even when they're being stalked by the Huron tribe, like giving her a gun when they're hiding in the burial ground, you know, those sorts of things. Like I can give her a gun. This is the kind of woman that I can give a gun to and trust that she's going to take a shot. If these guys kind of break the rules with the, you know, the French and Huron war parties. <laughs> um, and in those moments, Alice, and you know, I think this is the other thing. Poor Alice Monroe has been, before now, just bombing around a court in England, like in some well-off area. And she's been thrown into the wilderness where people are dying all around her. She's in this constant state of post-traumatic stress because it's like, all not post-traumatic stress, just traumatic stress because the whole, like it's not post, it's happening right in front of her. And there's that great scene where like, it's, it's, it's that embrace and her coming out of her shell and Uncas's impulse is more to be a protector because he is like a more of a, you know, stoic, you know, protector sort of vibes as opposed to like, you know, I don't think he's a, as much like Hawkeye who wants a woman to be able to hold a gun. He's like, I'm cool to be the protector. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Like I can yeah. have that more classical, like I'll protect her from this stuff. Um, but it's, yeah, you're so right that, that, that embrace and that connection that starts to forge brings her out of a shell and, and that's all the tragedy. But like, for a character that some people write off in Alice, tell me, tell me five other, tell me five, even give me one other gestural performance that is as devastating as Alice staring at Magua and having that exchange and looking down to Uncas and then staring back and actually making an agency choice of like, I'm literally stuck between death on those rocks and that war party and and that man and that and and he for for all of her exposure to Maguire, it's like that guy is always going to be bad for me <laughs> it's always it's, it's no, there's no there's no good there's no good result at the end of this relationship it's not going to be fun no matter what happens um and she makes the call to to end her life it's she, she's terrific Jodie may what a legend She's so amazing on that. And she's a great actress otherwise. I mean, I remember seeing her in other movies where she's like, oh, she's she can she can speak. She's great. <laughs> this is very stupid, but like so she's like a, a wonderful actress, but like you know, a wonderful actor is someone who can do both, you know, who can speak very well, be have great dialogue, but also can do very little. And she does like very little in a in a beautiful way. That's her close-ups are so loaded. And going back again to like the idea of just like some of those shots, like the shot of her. It's in slight slow-mo when she, mm. she looks back up at Magua after she's looking down at Unka's body. And there's, like, you can see this, like, these water drops and, like, the frame. And I just, like, 
again, this is like these like weird, weird details that I've never forgotten. Uh, even from when as, as a kid who didn't even know how to read a movie, who had no visual literacy, even though I'm just like all these like little things in this movie that are just so perfect. Also like with the scene with Alice when she's contemplating that and they just like kind of get stuck in this groove, like the music actually gets stuck in this groove, kind of like a record skipping a little bit and it just holds there and then it picks up right at the right moment. But uh, I actually wanna go back, you were talking about Thief and the music and Thief, Tangerine Dream screen score and Thief. Um, I'm sure you know this cause you're like the Michael Mann expert, but Thief, <laughs> the original score, he was like, I'm gonna go with like Chicago blues. This is a Chicago yes. movie, yes. And he was like, that's just too specific. And then, you know, a lot of filmmakers were starting to use, like William Friedkin started to use like Tangerine Dream. And so he was like, what if I did this? This is really outside the box. This is like a gritty crime movie, but what if it had this like dreamy German like synth score? And that's really what makes the movie and Manhunter as well. But then I also, I didn't know this, this is a Wikipedia thing, so this is not like shocking, but <laughs> the original score was supposed to be, I think it was like synth. Trevor Jones had composed this like synth score. Yes. And he was like, I'm gonna keep that. I'm gonna keep doing the synth score that I've been doing with uh, with Manhunter and, and The Keep and with Thief, he was keep, keep doing that whole thing that whole vibe. And then he's like, no, at the last minute, he's like, no, I think this needs an orchestral score. And here's this Irish song from 1990. Can you turn this into an orchestral thing? And Trevor Jones is like, shit, I don't have time to do this. <laughs> but I mean, but I imagine like, what would this movie be like if it had a kind of like Tangerine Dream-esque synth score? If it was that kind of dreamy quality to it, it would be, it would, the, it would completely transform the movie. Um, because even though it has this orchestral thing, it doesn't feel like every period piece. No. Um, even though it's huge sweeping music that gets trapped in your head. I was actually watching this when I was watching it. Um, my roommate who I share a wall with, he was just like, oh, you're watching Last of the Mohicans, huh? <laughs> and then a couple of days later, I was like in my bedroom and I was just like working. And then I heard like, oh, you're watching it. Yeah. I heard, the, I heard the score. I had to watch it. It's like, it's always just like, I don't know. Like you, it's like an assassin, like you, you like a, a, a call word or something like that, that like it lights you up, just like, oh, the, the Trevor, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. The Trevor Jones adaptation gets you to want to watch Last of the Mohicans all over again. Yeah. It's a really special score. There's, there's yeah. like, it's, it's, and it's really iconic. I think mm -hmm. once, once people have heard a couple of those big, you know, da, na, 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 it's like, <laughs> oh, oh, God damn, I'm going to watch this movie again. It's a trap. It's a trap. Mm -hmm. It happened it to me the other crap. day. It, it happened to me the other day. I saw I saw Collateral pop up in my Netflix carousel, and I was like, "You son of a bitch! I'm gonna watch Collateral again, aren't I? I've got 20 other things to watch, um, but I'm gonna watch it. It's just, you know, I think that's the trick. That's the trick with great movies, and that's the trick with Michael Mann. I mean, I'm extremely biased, but that's the trick with some of these movies. And I think Mohicans, I've got a softer spot. It was one of the first movies. It's definitely the first movie I saw of um, Michael Mann's that I can have a re remember, and it's also I remember the adults in my life, like parents and parents' friends had gone to see it at the movies um, and they came back and then we eventually saw it on TV or VHS or something at the time. Um, and I just remember all the adults were completely enamored with it. It was like, it was like the universal where people, you know, it was harder to hear people talk about heat in that way, especially in Australia. Um, Mohicans was like, Michael Mann was the Mohicans guy for the longest time, you know, it was like, oh, Mohicans guy until probably the insider. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's a really special movie, Matt. I love talk. I love, I've loved talking to you about it. And I love talking to anyone about how good it is because it just, it, it's genuinely special. It's really yeah. special. 
it's also easy to take for granted. Like I haven't watched this movie for years. I've watched part, of course, I've watched the ending so many times, just like on YouTube. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can just watch so many movies, just like the clips of that and just watch like the final 12 minutes on YouTube all the time. But the whole movie is incredible. And yeah, you were talking about just like how precise and how lean it is. Um, yeah, I, I forgot that like the first ambush, it's like 18 minutes into the movie. Uh, it's just, it, the opening is like a chase scene, a great chase scene. It's like, it's just like one thing after another. Uh, and it somehow never feels like it never feels mechanical. It's 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 it doesn't feel like they're just like cutting it to the bone. It doesn't feel like it's just been cut down in a mechanical way. It just flows really well. I've no it's just the damnedest thing. This thing is just like <laughs> like I said, it just it feels so filling and it's not that long. Um and I don't know, yeah, I don't know how I did it. I'm just gushing. I mean, this is just a wonderful film. And uh, <laughs> my my favorite, I think when I think of Michael Mann, I like to think about this rather than his like crime movies. As much as I love Heat, as much as I love all those other ones, Thief, this is my Michael Mann movie. So I will, hopefully there's more of me, I suppose. Uh, no. Among I, the, the huge cult of Michael Mann. No, there, there, there absolutely is. Um, a great friend of the show, filmmaker Joe Lynch, who came on One Heat Minute many times, is a huge Heat fan confessed to me on this very show that actually Mohicans is his favorite Michael Mann movie. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry to tell you, man, but like when you said you're doing Mohicans, I was like, I have to talk to you again because it's actually my favorite. It's actually exquisite. And, you know, mm -hmm. maybe as a filmmaker and as appreciator, and especially you, I think now, you know, teaching as well. I think it's like that, that craft and that there is something so undervalued about the potency of like, like a concise cinematic runtime to tell a fulfilling and whole story. I think that sometimes people use TV as a crutch. It's like, oh, don't worry, we'll get to that. But it's so much harder. If the degree of difficulty is harder when you've got like under two hours, I have to tell a very cohesive, powerful story. And there's this whole dunderheaded, completely, you know, backward approach that are like, unless it's a four hour cut, I don't want to see it. And a movie that's not two and a half hours long isn't a movie. It's like, get out. <laughs> You're not allowed to talk anymore. You're out of the conversation because that's just stupid. Um, the best movies are 70 minutes long anyway. The shorter, <laughs> yeah. the better. Hey, I, I saw a terrific little personal documentary this year that was like 56 minutes long. It's called Somewhere With, um, Somewhere With Bridges. Um, mm. um, and it was amazing. Like, it's one of the best movies I've seen this year. I would argue it probably will end up at the top of my list. Um, and it's 56 minutes long. It's a film. Um, a great, or, I love that length. It's a wonderful length. Yeah, and so and, I, and I again, things to do. I have TV shows to watch. <laughs> I've got thirteen hours of a TV show to watch and review. I need this time. But look, Matt, it, it has genuinely been an absolute pleasure to meet you and to chat with you. And uh, and I'm it, look, just beware now that we're connected. If I watch you uh, gushing about Mohicans uh, again on online, I'll be sliding <laughs> right into that chat, and I'll be like, I have arrived. Next time, just <laughs> next time, just tag me in this. I'm here for it. I'm here all about it. But hugely appreciate your time, and uh, yeah, just uh, I, I've loved to, uh, talking every minute of this with you. So thank you so much for being a part of the show. Yeah, hundred percent. Likewise, it's been so wonderful being on this, and such a great treat to finally meet you. So great, this is great to meet this you. Is wonderful all around. <laughs> and now, everyone, just as we wrap up, you can think about how wonderful. Madeline Stowe and Daniel Day-Lewis's hair is in this movie and how romantic that no one on the frontier would have it but it's a lie that we agree to tell each other that it's okay and it makes sense <laughs> it's the same thing as like the people the cops in his movies that have $3,000 suits it's, it's, <laughs> it's fine you know it's a very he's realistic and also just completely full of shit at the same time and that's <laughs> why we love Michael Mann <laughs> 
Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts.